Today we're going to talk about trading up, and uh, I would encourage you to open your Bibles to Revelation 21. Toward the end of the book, you'll find the, you know, toward the end of the Bible, you'll find the book of Revelation, and toward the end of Revelation, you'll find chapter 21, and as you may have guessed already, there is a Bible app event for this, so you can follow along that way if you would like to. You see the paperclip that's on the screen there? I don't know if you remember this or not, but in 2005, it was actually July 14, 2005, a guy named Kyle McDonald had a red paperclip, and he traded it. Anybody remember this story? Kyle traded his red paperclip for a fish-shaped pen. I'm not even sure what a fish-shaped pen is, but that's the trade he made. And then he took that fish-shaped pen and traded it for a hand-sculpted doorknob. And then the doorknob he traded for a Coleman stove with fuel included. And then the Coleman stove for a Honda generator. I just want to say that was a good trade right there. All right. And then the Honda generator, he traded that for a, quote, instant party. It was an empty keg of beer and an IOU for filling the keg and a neon sign. And then he traded that instant party for a Skidoo snowmobile. And then he traded that Skidoo snowmobile for a two-person trip to British Columbia and he traded one of those spots on that trip for a box truck. That's a trade. That's a good trade right there, right? Then he traded the box truck for a recording contract. Then he traded the recording contract for a year's rent in Phoenix, Arizona. And then he traded the year's rent in Phoenix, Arizona for an afternoon with none other than Alice Cooper. And then he traded the afternoon with Alice Cooper for a, for, <laughs> for a KISS, remember the band KISS? Motorized snow globe. I don't even know what that would look like, right? And then he traded that snow globe for a role in a film. And then finally, on July 5th, 2006, that's almost a full year later, he traded that movie role for a two-story farmhouse. From a paperclip to a farmhouse. I don't know what he does now, but I'll bet he's good at it because I'll bet it has something to do with wheeling and dealing, right? Yeah, that's some really good trading there. I was thinking about that as I was thinking about Revelation 21, and I realized that you might say, we're doing some trading as well. It's not step by step, it's one big trade. And I wanna talk to you today about the trade that we're making. We're going to stay in Revelation 21. We're just going to read right through throughout the message today. And we are making a trade. It's actually mentioned right in verse 1 of chapter 21 in Revelation. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. So we're trading an old earth for a new earth. Now, as soon as you say this, people say, oh, okay, but then we start to thinking, and people ask, okay, does that mean a replacement earth, or does that mean like a, a renewed earth? Are we going to have a remodel of the existing heaven and earth, or is he just going to get rid of it altogether and replace it with a new one? And the answer to that question is, I don't know. But Randy Alcorn, who wrote a book about heaven, has done a... a some pretty good work on this and has some remarkable observations. I want to share reasonable, I should say, observations. I want to share those with you because if you're that person that says, 
Hey, you know, I've always wondered, new heaven and new earth, is it going to be like a replacement or are we getting a whole new, a whole new outfit? Because I hope it's not a replacement. I got a replacement one time. I got that, you know, gently used sweater and it had a hole in it. And I don't, I don't know if I want that. Okay, Alcorn says this. He says, at first you might feel like it's got to be a new one and it, and, it, and it is a new one because of some common Bible verses. For example, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is talking and he's making a point about the trustworthiness of his word, and he just uses as an illustration, Jesus says, heaven and earth, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. Okay, heaven and earth will pass away. That sounds like gone forever, right? So first you might say, yeah, I, I think it means gone forever that we're getting a brand spanking new earth. And there's another passage we'll talk about in a little more detail when Peter is writing in 2 Peter 3.10. And as Peter's talking, he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will, listen to this phrasing, disappear with a roar. <coughs> the elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it, that's an interesting phrase, everything done in it, will be laid bare. Okay, disappear with a roar, destroyed by fire, laid bare, sounds pretty final. Even a passage we just read. Your Bibles are open to Revelation 21. Listen again to that language, a new heaven, a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There's no longer any sea. Whoa, wait a minute. I gotta pause there and talk to people who enjoy fishing. Anybody here like fishing? Yeah, okay. You disappointed in that? Don't be. <laughs> okay, don't be. Um, literally, I, I heard a guy say one time, I don't wanna go to heaven. Why? Because there's no sea there and I really like fishing. <laughs> That's kind of funny, isn't it? Yeah. For the sake of those, uh, that you, uh, those of you that do enjoy fishing, understand, I believe that when that scripture says, and most scholars believe this, there's no sea. It doesn't mean a body of water. It, it means there's no longer any source of evil. You see, the pagan nations that surrounded God's people throughout the scripture were an unholy influence on them and caused them great trouble. And they can be thought of as the sea of nations. You understand the sea of all those pagans who are all around us, everywhere we turn, there they are. Their attacks and their influence on the people of God was a never-ending problem. So I believe when God says there's no sea, he's saying that isn't here anymore. That sea of nations that used to cause trouble. No more. And if you just want to think of it from a geocentric, or a, that's not the right word, from a geological point of view, is that the right word? Geology? Yeah, geological point of view. I'm going to use it anyway. Okay. There's a river in the city, and it's flowing. It's got to go somewhere, right? <laughs> it's got to go somewhere. So I'm pretty sure there probably is an ocean, and if you really need to fish, I think Jesus will give you a pole. I'm, I'm confident if you really need to fish that he'll do that. Okay, now let's stop with that, that triviality. Let's go back to verse 1, and let's read it again. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and first earth has passed away, and there was no longer any sea. It's easy to conclude that the existing heaven and earth would be replaced with a newer model. However, since the seventh day of creation, God has specialized, it seems that he has specialized in redemption and renewal rather than replacement. You can see that if you look carefully. Even at the passages we've looked at. Think of Peter who says the elements will be destroyed by, by fire. Fire isn't just for destruction. What fire destroys is that which is impure, and the reason it destroys it is so that that which is pure can remain. The Apostle Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 
And he's talking about the good things that we do, or maybe the not so good things that we do, and how God will look at that on that day. And he says, if anyone builds on his foundation using gold or silver, costly stones or wood or hay or straw, their work's going to be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It'll be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each one's work. And if what has been built survived, the builder receives a reward. If it's burned up, the builder suffers loss, yet he himself will be saved even as one escaping through the flames. So in that case, the fire destroys that which is bad, and it purifies that which is good. I, I'm not a, a metallurgist, you know, but I, I've heard enough and read enough and watched enough that when you, if you have metal and you heat it to boiling, that the, the stuff that floats to the top, I think they call that dross, and, and they can skim that off, and then what you have left after the fire has, has proven it is the pure gold or silver or whatever it is that you were working with. Fire destroys what is bad. It actually purifies and preserves that which is good. So yeah, maybe God isn't replacing. Maybe he's purifying and renewing. It kind of makes sense because God loves to take what is broken and make it whole. Remember I mentioned Randy Alcorn a short time ago. In his book, Heaven, he talks about something John Piper says. John Piper is one of my heroes. I love John Piper. John Piper says, Randy writes this way. Piper argues that God did not create matter to throw it away. He writes that when Revelation 21.1 and 2 Peter 3.10 say the present earth and the heavens will pass away, it doesn't mean no God of existence, but it may mean they'll have such a change in them that their present condition passes away. We might say the caterpillar passes away and the butterfly emerges. There is a real passing away and there is a real continuity, a real connection. I tend to agree. I think it's a renewed kind of thing. I mean, look at verse 5. It says... He who is seated, was seated on the throne, says, I am making everything new. Write this down. These, are the, these words are trustworthy and true. Heaven and earth is part of everything. I'm making it new. A redeemed earth, a redeemed heaven. Now, I will fight about this. If you feel like, nope, I think it's all gone and there's a new one in its place, okay, I'm good with that. Because I don't really think it's an important issue. In fact, you may even think, why are you bringing this up? Why does this even matter? Pastor Steve, you've been working through Revelation to make it really relevant and not just trivia. This feels kind of trivial. This is not trivial. Because if you think about it, <laughs> I am so glad that God is a God. Look at the screen. Read the last sentence there. God is a God who loves to take what is broken and make it whole. I am so glad he is that God. Who doesn't just throw away that which is not what it should be but he redeems it. I mean, that's what he did with me, right? He didn't look at me and say, Steve, you're stained with sin. You're broken and useless because of your past and you're rebellious. Get out of here. He didn't do that with me. <laughs> didn't do that with you either, right? Instead, he said, Steve, let me take your sin-stained life and clean it. Clean it white and pure, white as snow. Let me make you, Steve, Forgive the gender switch here. Let me make you, Steve, like a bride <laughs> prepared for her husband. Let me take your brokenness, Steve, and mend it so that you can be stronger than you were and you can do that which I have in mind for you to do and you can be the person you so long to be that I created you to be. Steve, come to me and you will find value in your life in spite of your past, in spite of the things that you did and the things that were done to you. Let me care for your soul. Let me make you well. I'm delighted that he did that, right? 
I am delighted with him reviving my dead spirit and renewing my lifeless heart and resurrecting eventually my physical body rather than just dropping me off and exchanging me for a newer model. I'm really glad for that. And I'm okay if he's doing the same with the heaven and the earth. I'll take it either way. No matter how you slice it, though, we are trading an old heaven and an old earth for a new one. And we are trading an evil city for a holy city. I have friends who have lived in the city and they moved out of the city with their children because they wanted to escape the evil that was in the city, wanted to live a country life, a more rural life, and so they left the city and moved to the country. Guess what they discovered? (laughs) You know, right? The evil exists in the heart of man, not in geographical locations per se. It isn't just in a city. It's everywhere, everywhere, everywhere in this old world. But evil is not in the New Jerusalem. I mean, look at verse 2. I saw the holy city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven as a bride beautifully prepared, dressed for her husband. Holy. Okay, let's just be real frank here. Think of what that means. (laughs) It means without sin. It means there's no child abuse. There's no me too. There's no mass killings. There's no war. There's no liars. There's nothing evil. Earlier in the book of Revelation, a city that got a lot of ink was called Babylon. You remember that when when it speaks of Babylon in in chapter 18, it says, with a mighty voice that was sh- he shouted, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons, a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable a- animal for the nations have drunk of her maddening wine of her adulteries. Her sins are piled up to heaven and God has remembered her crime. In her was found the blood of prophets and God holy people who've been slaughtered on the earth. That's an ugly city. That's an evil city. And we're trading that kind of habitation for a city that is as beautiful and pure as it can be. I mean, consider the metaphor that God uses for this city. A bride. A beautiful bride. On her wedding day. You've probably heard the phrase, I've never seen an ugly bride. There are a couple reasons for that. One reason is that brides and grooms alike know that this is the one day they better look the best because the person across from them may say, I don't. (laughs) So that's one reason, right? And so brides especially work to make themselves beautiful, as beautiful as they can possibly be. Countless times when I've done weddings or been to weddings, been involved in them, the hairdresser's showing up at church. Where can I plug in, pastor? (laughs) Oh, wow, you brought your whole salon with you. Yep, I got a lot of work in front of me, pastor. No, she never says that, right? Yeah, but you understand, God chooses that metaphor of this beautiful, pure, radiant, lovely bride to talk about the kind of city that we're trading into. We're trading a place that is a den for demons for a place that is holy, radiant, and beautiful. And we're trading isolation for intimacy. Now, you may feel like that word isolation is kind of strong to describe our lives today, but I don't know, a couple years ago, 
CBS News reported they surveyed 2,000 people, and I can't remember the name of the outfit that did the survey, but it wasn't BuzzFeed. It was a real uh, survey company. 2,000 people, and they found that almost three-quarters of Americans feel alone. And we talk about this a lot, alone. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about the tools that our generations have so we don't have to feel alone. I'm holding one in my hand. If there was a Steeler game right now, this thing would be buzzing with my family all around the globe saying, I can't believe he threw that pass or whatever. I don't watch Steeler games alone even if Laurel doesn't come downstairs because I have all my buddies that are on a texting group with me and hangouts. Social media. How about this? Automobiles. If you feel alone, you can get in your car. You can drive somewhere in 20 minutes. You can be probably at 30 different houses of people you know. Maybe 90 houses in 30 minutes. Just think about people who lived 100 years ago or 150 years ago. Think of a farmer who, who had a pretty big farm. If he was feeling alone, he had to walk or get on his horse. And a neighbor might have been two to five miles down the road. Beyond that, if he wanted any social life at all, he had to go to church three times a week. It's one of the reasons he did it. Because he felt, we should not feel alone. What is wrong with us? Nothing that wasn't wrong with every generation before us. Because that aloneness that we feel is probably rooted in the reality that we are separated from the one we most desperately need to make us whole. And that's God. He sees us as alone. You know, when he comes into the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve have sinned, it is God who is looking for them, but it is not for his benefit, it is for theirs. In fact, when he dies on the cross, he dies so you do not have to be alienated from him. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18, in the first part of that verse, he says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Here's the phrase, to bring you to God. So you didn't have to be out there alone. We don't have to be out there alone. But let me be completely honest with you. There are times that even as a Christian, I long to be closer to God. Man, when Jeff prayed this morning and said, we want to be with you. We get to be with you. Wow, that resonated with my heart. I long for that. And I'm trading this isolation for that intimacy. And that's a good trade. I'm also trading, we are also trading, sorrow for shalom. You may not know what shalom is. We'll fill you in in a minute. You know what sorrow is, right? Sorrow is the absence of well-being. It's a feeling that nothing will ever be good again. It is laden with regret and hopelessness, sorrow, despair. We're trading that for shalom, which is a Jewish word. When Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, he uses the word shalom, no doubt. Shalom I leave with you, my shalom I give to you. And that is a profound sense of well-being. You know, that even if you're a Star Trek nerd from the past, when, when Nemoy did this, Leonard Nemoy the actor, and said, live long and prosper, he was Jewish, and he had in his mind the blessing that the rabbi gave the people in the temple, shalom, live long, prosper, be well, don't have sorrow, find peace, find joy, find contentment, find happiness. We are trading sorrow for shalom. And that's a good, good trade. And you see it in verse 4. It says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes, there will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things, the old order of things has passed away. Now, when it comes to this trade, I notice there are no tradebacks. <laughs> Did you ever, when you were a kid, 
Maybe you traded a Hot Wheel car, I don't know, for a pack of baseball cards. And then you open the baseball cards and you said, son of a gun, these are no good. They're all loser pirates. <laughs> and you try to trade it back. No, there's no trade backs. There's no trade backs. God promises there's no trade backs here, but that's a good thing. I say that because he notes that it's done in verse 5. He who is seated on the throne says, I am making everything new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Verse 6, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. It is done. I feel like I've come upon that passage, or that phrase rather, another place in the Bible. Who is it that said, it is done? And it was a profoundly remarkable historic statement. Oh yeah, it was Jesus. When he's hanging on the cross, he says that Greek word, telestai, it is finished. That's the same word that the one on the throne uses here. It is finished. It's a done deal. No trade backs, and it's a good trade that you're making. It's, it's a, a planned trade, an intended trade, a, a trade that gives you what you need. The last part of verse 6 says, the one who is thirsty, I give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And when you make this trade, the market is closed. And the language of verse 7 speaks of, of the doneness of the deal when it says, those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my f- children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second we death. The market's closed. It's a done deal. Don't ever forget. For you and I, this trade is a huge upgrade. So, I'm a bit of a skeptic. For example, I received notice in the mail that my 2008 Chevrolet Tahoe with 130,000 miles on it is in high demand now, and the dealership would like me to bring it in so they can have it to sell it to someone else. They'll give me top dollar on a trade-in. I'm really skeptical about that. I don't know about you, but I got a phone call the other day that on that very vehicle, my extended warranty is about to run out. (laughs) I am skeptical about that. And in the book of Revelation, I read that God's got this trade-up plan for me. I might be skeptical about that, but I mustn't be skeptical about that. God gives John this wondrous view so that he can sense the reality and the goodness of this trade-out. Look at verse 9, trade-up. It says, verse 9, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came to me. He says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And the view that he gives John affirms that that which we receive is pure and holy. Verse 10, he carries me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. From God, from heaven, (laughs) pure and good. And the view that John receives tell us that that which we receive is a radiant thing. In, In verse 11, it says, it shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. And then in verse 8, he details, you know, all these stones, the gold, the glass, the jasper, the walls decorated with every kind of precious stone. And he goes on and says, a foundation of jasper and sapphire and, you know, gems that you can't even pronounce. He's got listed here. The value of this cannot be assessed. This, will, this thing that we're getting. 
And then he affirms, this view John has given affirms that what we receive is timeless. Look at verse 12. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. And the wall had 12 foundations. On them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Do you see this covers all of God's history? It's timeless. It is the culmination of all things. The view that John has given shows that it's expansive. You can find out in verses 15 through 17. I just want you to notice it appears in verse 17 that the, I think a cubit is like 18 inches, if I'm not mistaken, and a wall is 144 cubits thick. That is how some scholars understand it. That's a big place. That's a big place. Most importantly, the view that God affirms, and this is what you must understand, is that what we receive is of God, and he is there. He is there. I take you back to Jeff's prayer. We get to be with you, God. Verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine in it for the glory of God gives light and the Lamb is its lamps. And then he goes on to show how it provides guidance. It says the nations walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. And he speaks of protection. He says in verse 25, on no day will its gates ever be shut, for there's no night there. And he even gives you a sense of belonging when he says, the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is an upgrade, (laughs) because God is there in the center of it. Trade's an upgrade. A buddy of mine uh, has a car dealership. You may know him. I don't have permission to use his name, but you may know him. (laughs) I haven't talked to him, that's all. He's a great guy. He's a great guy. And I love to tease. I don't know if you know that about me, but I love joking around. And so uh, from time to time, I will ask him uh, for trade. I'll say, I have this lovely 2008 Tahoe with 130,000 miles on it, and I wonder if you would trade me. Here it is. I wonder if you'd trade me even up for 2018 F-150 with no more than 15,000 miles on it. I want to do an even up trade with you. Is that okay with you, buddy? And his response to my nonsense, <laughs> to my nonsense joke is unchanging. He chuckles. And then he says, did you say even up? I don't even know what that means. What is even up? That's not a word, right? Even up? See, he's a businessman. He knows that he really needs to count the costs so that he can stay in business. The trade you and I have been exploring is not an even-up trade. We paid nothing, but we receive everything. Who paid it? The lamb. The lamb that was slain paid it. And you know this because over the past few months we've been going through Revelation and you are such astute students of the word of God and you have such keen memory that you remember the song that was sang in Revelation chapter five when it says they sang a new song. You, speaking to the lamb, are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
It's not an even up trade. <laughs> because the lamb paid for all of it. And he makes it available to us when we just turn from our sin, trusting his death to pay for our sin and follow after him. Anyone who doesn't take that trade is just foolish. Just foolish. So if you've taken a trade, you should be thankful. <laughs> and it's Thanksgiving week, so that's cool. Count your blessings. Raise the song of harvest home. Be thankful. If you haven't taken the trade, take it. Don't hang on to this evil city. Don't hang on to this old earth. Don't hold on to this lonesomeness, this isolation that you feel. In your heart, turn to God and say, I know, I know that I have offended a holy God. And I am thankful for the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Lamb of God, Jesus, take away my sin. I would like to exchange my filth <laughs> for your cleansing. Make it so in Christ's name. I would encourage you to do both of those things. If you've never made a trade, make it. If you have made a trade, thank God for it. In fact, let's do that in prayer as we conclude our time together. Would you like to stand with me if you're comfortable doing so? Let's pray. Jesus, you are worthy because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every language, every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. You paid it all. We are thankful for the trade. Any of us here, God, that haven't made that trade, we do it now. We say, I am sorry for my sin. I recognize my foolishness. I don't want to hang on to the evil. I am tired of the isolation. I want the new. I want you to revitalize, to renew, to redeem me and make me into a new person. Forgive me for my sins, Jesus. I trust you and I will follow you. And I know, God, that when one does that, that by your Holy Spirit, you make us into a new person. You say so in your word in verses like, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You love making beautiful things out of dust. You say in your word as well, Father, <laughs> that this is a done deal. When we trust you, we know it's a done deal. So we walk in thankfulness of heart. We walk after you. We don't perceive this exchange as mere fire insurance so that our seat is reserved in the cabin in heaven. <laughs> Rather, we see this exchange as a new life, an adventure to be lived following you. In Christ's name, amen.